This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. This is one of your co-hosts, John Freilich, and I'm joined today by Justin Boyle. Uh, Justin and I are going to be chatting about some ID articles today. And in fact, lately, there's been a lot of interesting ID papers. Justin, what are you talking about today? Today, I'll be talking about a paper that was just published in Nejim uh, this month in uh, October. And it's entitled Ceftobiprol for Treatment of Complicated Staphylococcus aureus Bacteremia. It's also known as the Eradicate Trial by Holland et al. Okay, that's a very cool uh, abbreviation. Eradicate trial. So what was the research question here? So essentially, this was a phase three trial comparing cetobiprol with daptomycin in patients who had complicated staph aureus bacteremia, including those who had right-sided endocarditis, and determining if it was non-inferior relative to the daptomycin. Okay. Uh, why did you think this was important? I think this is important because staph aureus bacteremia is a very common type of infection that we encounter um, in terms of inpatient internal medicine, and it's frequently lethal. And there are very limited antibiotic treatment options, particularly with patients that have methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus infections. And so essentially, this is a very useful paper because if there's an antibiotic that is highly effective in treating uh, staph aureus bacteremia and its associated complications, then I think it's really essential for us to figure out if it works or not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And Ceftobiprol, I had to look it up, but are we now in like the fifth generation of cephalosporins? Is that what this is? I agree. I think it's a fifth generation of cephalosporin. Okay, because uh, not to date myself too much, but I think in med school, we were up to like third generation. So I, I've missed a couple generations. Uh, but what was the study design here? So the study design was a double-blind, double-dummy, randomized non-inferiority trial, and it was conducted across 60 sites in 17 countries from August 2018 through to March 2022. And I rarely encounter double-dummy studies, and so uh, for the listeners, a double-dummy study is a technique for retaining the blindedness of a trial when administering supplies that cannot be made identically. So for example, in this case, it's because these two antibiotics, adaptobiprol and adaptomycin, are dosed very differently. Um, And so essentially, they are prepared for a treatment A group. So you have both one antibiotic and then a placebo of the other, um, so that the patients and the administrators of the antibiotic or the treatment can't tell which is which. Essentially, within this trial, eligible patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio to either receive septobiprol at a dose of 500 milligrams intravenously every six hours during the first eight days and every eight hours thereafter, or adaptomycin at a dose of six milligrams per kilogram of body weight every 24 hours, with the option to use doses of up to 10 milligrams per kilogram, um, if that was consistent with what those institutional protocols were. And additionally, the patients in the septobiprol group received dummy infusions with placebo-matching daptomycin, like I referenced, and vice versa. There was also an option to add as trianam for daptomycin-treated patients, um, or a matching placebo if gram-negative coverage was required. And beyond this, they took blood cultures at different points um, throughout the enrollment within the trial. Um, At baseline, daily for the first three days after randomization, and then every 48 to 72 hours thereafter until they were negative for staph aureus, and then at two time points after the follow-up period. And in terms of duration of actually receiving antibiotics, they had two different cohorts. One cohort that would receive the antibiotic for less than or equal to 28 days, and then a cohort two that would receive antibiotics for less than or equal to 42 days. And that was for both if you received the septobiprol or the daptomycin. 
And to go into the inclusion criteria, so essentially eligible patients were at least 18 years of age and they were hospitalized with Staph aureus bacteremia, confirmed by at least one positive blood culture obtained within 72 hours before randomization with clinical evidence of a complicated bacteremia. And this was defined as persistent Staph aureus bacteremia, so blood cultures despite receipt of appropriate antibiotics for greater than three days, Staph aureus bacteremia associated with long-term hemodialysis, or bacteremia arising from soft tissue infection, abdominal abscess, any sort of septic arthritis, for example, septic pulmonary embolus, epidural abscess, or right-sided endocarditis of a native valve. And transesophageal echocardiography was used to confirm the right-sided endocarditis. And if you were excluded, essentially, if you had some sort of unremovable endovascular prosthetic material, pneumonia, or you received antibiotics that were potentially effective for more than 48 hours within seven days before randomization. Sorry, this is a mouthful. In terms of outcomes, uh, the primary outcome was overall treatment success at 70 days after randomization. And treatment success was essentially defined as survival, symptom improvement, S. aureus bloodstream clearance, absence of new S. aureus bacteremia-related complications, and no use of other potentially effective antibiotics. And essentially, they wanted this to be non-inferior within a margin of 15%. And they had a variety of secondary and safety outcomes, which included things such as death from any cause, microbiological eradication, overall treatment success at day 70 in the per-protocol population, um, and for safety, essentially categorizing adverse events according to incidence type and severity and the relationship to receiving either antibiotic. And this was a trial that was carried out in an intention-to-treat manner. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for explaining the double dummy component because, yeah, it's not something that we see very often. Uh, so you're randomized to either ceftobiprol or daptomycin in patients who had staph aureus bacteremia. All right. So I guess first, uh, table one, what did the patients look like? So the baseline characteristics and the pre-specified risk factors for acquiring staph aureus bacteremia or infective endocarditis were quite balanced between the two different trial groups. And pre-specified risk factors included things such as use of injection drugs, for example. The median duration of treatment um, in each group was 21 days with a range of 21 to 25 if you got the septobiprol and 21 to 23 if you received aptomycin. Um, and essentially, there were similar quantities of patients um, that had a complicated MRSA bacteremia in each group. Um, with respect to demographics, approximately 70% of the participants were men, and the majority were ethnically white or Caucasian from Eastern Europe. And the groups were also balanced between the type of Staph aureus-related complications. So for example, there were similar numbers of people that had right-sided heart uh, endocarditis and septic arthritis, persistent bacteremia, etc. So what did they find? So with respect to their main outcome, so a total of 132 out of 189 patients in the septobiprol group and 136 of 198 patients in the daptomycin group had overall treatment success. And so given that the lower boundary of this 95% confidence interval was minus 7.1%, which was greater than the pre-specified margin of 15%, essentially this confirmed the non-inferiority of septobiprol to daptomycin. The superiority of septobiprol over daptomycin was not achieved. And so essentially the differences in treatment success were similar across all of their sort of primary and secondary pre-specified analyses. And with respect to things like adverse events, for example, um, those were quite similar between receiving each antibiotic. And 
the thing that they do know is that there was a higher incidence of gastrointestinal related issues with ceftabiprol um, compared to daptomycin. But apart from that, um, there were no other significant adverse outcome differences. Okay, pretty cool. So sounds like ceftobiprol, uh, non-inferior compared to daptomycin. Uh, what are some of the limitations here? So the, one of the first limitations to consider is that there are a very few number of non-white participants. Uh, within this paper, though, they did highlight that um, they think that despite this, the results are properly generalizable to patients that we see within the North American context. And specifically, they say that um, with respect to the actual colonies and types of Staph aureus that are seen in Eastern Europe and in the US, for example, are quite similar. Beyond that, they state that black and white patients with S aureus bacteremia have similar clinical outcomes despite differences in underlying risk factors. And beyond that, um, with things such as uh, hemodialysis, for example, which is a big risk factor for SRA bacteremia, um, they don't necessarily see that there are significant differences with respect to racial disparity and outcomes in that regard. Other types of limitations that were noted in this paper are that only one quarter of the patients that were enrolled had MRSA infection, so you can't really make any definitive conclusions about efficacy within this subgroup, just given that it was only 25% of all those enrolled. Beyond that, daptomycin was administered what they say at a, a lower dose relative to what you typically could see in clinical practice. More than that, more than half the patients that were enrolled with the S or his bacteremia had soft tissue infections. And so this may sort of affect how we generalize this to other types of complications with staph aureus bacteremia. Beyond that, I'm not actually sure how long you would treat a patient with this antibiotic because when they stated that the sort of median duration of treatment was within the realm of 20 days or so, um, that's sort of less than what you would treat something like endocarditis with, but then more than what you would treat someone that has an uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia. And so I don't know in clinical practice what duration you would use or what you would follow in that regard. And another thing to consider is that this study was heavily funded um, by the pharmaceutical company that makes the antibiotic. And I guess the other thing is the comparison arm in general of daptomycin. I mean, I, I don't use daptomycin a lot, but I can kind of appreciate why they did that. Because as we all know, if you just use Vanco, well, that's not as good if it's MSSA. Uh, and so I guess it becomes a lot more complicated if you then have to have kind of multiple arms for the control treatment group, hey? Yes. Okay, um, cool study. Uh, what's the take-home point here? So I think the fundamental take-home point is that septobiprol was non-inferior to daptomycin for the treatment of S. aureus bacteremia. And the results of this double-blind trial show that this antibiotic could be a useful treatment option for patients that have complicated staph aureus bacteremia, including infective endocarditis, that's right-sided, and caused by either MSSA or MRSA. Cool. Uh, practice changing for you? I think that this definitely is more likely to be practice changing in the sense that, like I mentioned at the beginning, there are very few intravenous antibiotic treatments that we can give for complicated staph aureus infections. And this is an antibiotic that can treat both MSSA and MRSA. And so I think that this could be a great addition to sort of our antibiotic toolkit if needed. Um, although I'd be curious to see what other trials come up uh, in exploring the use of ceftobiprol and different types of staph aureus infections. Okay, um, I guess we'll change gears and uh, we'll move on to the next paper. And I'll talk about this one called the efficacy of a clinical decision rule uh, to enable direct oral challenge in patients with low risk penicillin allergy, the PALIS randomized control trial. This was by Kopescu et al. published in JAMA IM July 17th, 2023. Sweet. And what was the research question? 
The question here was, is a direct oral penicillin challenge in patients with a low-risk penicillin allergy defined by the PENFAST score of less than 3 safe and effective when you compare that with the standard uh, penicillin skin testing followed by an oral penicillin challenge? Oh, cool. And why is this important? Uh, well, a lot of people carry a label of a penicillin allergy, but often it's unverified and the details of the reaction are unknown. Uh, this comes up all the time when you're seeing patients in the hospital. Um, as a doctor, it can be challenging to try to tease out what the true risk is for a significant allergic reaction in some of these patients. Um, and these unverified labels are associated with negative outcomes. Uh, a whole bunch of stuff, longer hospital admissions, development of resistant infections, uh, excessive healthcare costs. You know, when thinking about determining if someone has a true allergy or not, usually the standard of care would be to do skin testing. And if skin testing was negative, you then do an oral challenge. Uh, there's some observational data, however, that shows that a direct oral penicillin challenge without skin testing is effective in low-risk adults. But guidelines currently indicate that this is only a conditional recommendation due to low-quality evidence. Uh, the PENFAST is a prospectively derived and internationally validated clinical decision rule that allows for point-of-care risk assessment for patients reporting penicillin allergy. I think Mike had actually presented one of the uh, papers related to PENFAST a few months ago, and what it's basically been found is that in a score of less than three, it has a negative predictive value of 96.3%. And so this PENFAST score, what is it? Well, uh, so there's three components. If it was five years or less since the reaction to the penicillin antibiotic, then you get two points. Um, if the reaction included anaphylaxis or angioedema or a severe cutaneous reaction, you get two points. And if treatment was required for the reaction, you get one point. And treatment could include any systemic treatment like antihistamine, steroids, or epinephrine. And what the, the cohort studies have shown is that patients with a score of zero are very low risk, less than 1% for risk of penicillin allergy. A score of one one to two is low risk, about 5% risk for penicillin allergy, and uh, three is a 20% risk, four to five is high risk, about a 50% risk for penicillin allergy. So the purpose of this study was to evaluate whether those risk stratified patients um, could undergo a direct oral challenge with penicillin, and if it's going to be non-inferior to penicillin skin testing followed by an oral challenge. Very cool. And what design did they use? Uh, this was a multi-center, non-inferiority, international, open-labeled, randomized controlled trial. It was conducted at six centers in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Uh, the patient population, so patients were aged 18 or older, they were labeled with a penicillin allergy and referred to an allergy clinic. They had to have a PENFAST score of less than three, and there were a number of exclusion criteria, including if you'd ever had a history of anaphylaxis, um, you know, any history of a chronic spontaneous urticarial type rash or mast cell disease, uh, some other things as well. Patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either direct oral penicillin challenge or the control group, which was the uh, standard of, you know, intradermal skin testing followed by a one-step oral challenge if the negative, if the skin test was negative. For the oral penicillin, it was the lowest available therapeutic dose uh, at whatever site, so it could have included things like amoxicillin or penicillin VK. Uh, participants were directly observed for 60 minutes following the administration, and they also had follow-up five days afterwards for any delayed adverse events. The outcome of interest, so the primary outcome, was physician-verified positive oral penicillin challenge. 
this was defined as an immediate reaction occurring within that hour after ingestion uh, that was consistent with an immune-mediated reaction. So diffuse erythema, rash or urticaria, angioedema, respiratory compromise, uh, anaphylaxis, or any unexplained cardiovascular collapse. And two blinded investigators judged the reactions retrospectively. In the control arm, skin testing is considered a safety measure to avoid an adverse reaction. So participants who had positive skin testing were counted as not achieving the primary outcome. This was a non-inferiority study with a non-inferiority margin of 5% and intention to treat analysis. All right. And what was their patient population like? Uh, so there were 382 patients who were enrolled, 190 were randomized to the intervention arm, and 192 were randomized to the control arm. The average age was 50 to 52 years of age. Um, the majority, 62 to 68%, were female. There were different comorbidities that were balanced between the groups, uh, things like asthma, allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis. Uh, most patients had a PENFAST score of 0 or 1, with only 6% uh, having a score of 2. And the, sorry, the 6% was in the intervention arm, and I think it was 3% in the control arm who had a score of 2. Uh, and the majority of patients had a penicillin allergy label based on a childhood reaction. And what results did they find? Uh, so for that primary outcome, um, a primary outcome of a positive oral challenge occurred in 1 in 187 patients in the intervention group, uh, which was 0.5%. And it occurred in 1 in 190 patients, which was also 0.5%, in the control group. The risk ratio was 1.02 um, with confidence intervals from 0.1 to 10, and the result met criteria for non-inferiority. The patients that had a positive oral challenge tended to present with mild cutaneous skin reactions that resolved after a dose of antihistamine. Uh, adverse events were similar between the two groups. Interesting. It seems like most of these patients had a very, very low PEN score, so I wonder what that would look like if they included more of the two and threes. That's a really good point. And I think it kind of brings up one of the limitations here is truthfully, the majority of patients here had a PENFAST score of zero or one. Um, and so it is a bit hard to know how generalizable uh, these results would be to someone who had a score of two. Um, so I think that is kind of an important limitation here. We're really thinking about the lowest risk patient for having an allergic reaction. Another, rel not limitation, relative limitation is just thinking about how to use this practically. You know, when you are in the emergency department and you're seeing someone with sepsis, uh, time to antibiotic matters. And, you know, you don't necessarily have the time in that moment to decide about an amoxicillin challenge. So, you know, probably this is going to be very useful in kind of like the outpatient setting. I think there's still a role for it to be considered though in the inpatient setting, but probably after the acute event or when the patient is stable and maybe even like getting ready for discharge home or something. That's very fair. And beyond that, what would be the overall summary of these findings? Uh, yeah, so um, what they found was that they were able to remove the allergy label in 99.5% of patients in the intervention group, um, which I think is pretty impressive. Uh, the oral challenge in patients with low-risk pen allergy defined by a PENFAST score of less than 3 was non-inferior to the standard of skin testing followed by a direct oral challenge. Very cool. And is this practice changing? Yeah, I think so. I, I think this is going to have a big impact from, uh, you know, reducing costs as well as delay in getting someone to be seen by allergy. I don't know what it's like in Toronto, but it can be pretty difficult uh, to get skin testing done in a timely basis. So um, it's pretty nice. And the other thing that's just really cool too is the evolution of how this research took place, like starting with some of the observational studies just to show if the score was going to be helpful or not, and then adopting it into a randomized controlled trial. Really, really cool to see it start to finish. 
I agree. And I mean, I haven't referred anyone to allergy yet in Toronto, but in Kingston, it took a very, very long time to have patients be seen by allergy to really assess if they were allergic. So hopefully this would be applicable for very low resource settings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, All right. Well, I guess that wraps up today's ID inspired episode. Uh, But before we go, let's chat about the good stuff. Justin, what caught your eye for good stuff? Well, I guess it's not news related, but I went to my first sort of ICRE conference this weekend, which is a Canadian medical education conference. And it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I got to meet a lot of cool new people. And I guess it's inspired my love of medical education research. And so uh, I think that's my good stuff for today. Ah, that sounds really nice. Where was it? Was it somewhere uh, fun, somewhere interesting? Yeah, it was in Halifax. It was a lot of fun. Oh, that is such an amazing city. That's great. Um, What's your good stuff for today? Uh, My good stuff uh, coming from the good old CBC News. It's about a 99-year-old gentleman who climbed the CN Tower for the United Way fundraiser. Uh, It's amazing. So like the CN Tower, it's something like 1,700 and change steps. He did it in an hour and 10 minutes. I mean, man, this is impressive. I don't know if I could even do it in like two hours or do it at all. Definitely more fit than I am. Yeah, pretty impressive. All right, Justin, well, thanks a lot. uh, And uh, we will chat again soon. For sure. Have a good night. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.